the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? If you find value in this podcast, please give us a high rating on iTunes and connect via Twitter at James Strzok and via our website, servetolead.org. With us today is a rising star in the public policy and philanthropic firmament, Ann Snyder. Ann Snyder is the author of an excellent new book, The Fabric of Character, A Wise Giver's Guide to Supporting Social and Moral Renewal. She's also the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine. Her work on character is wide-ranging and informed by experience. She's director of the Character Initiative at the Philanthropy Roundtable. She's also a fellow at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, a Houston-based think tank. And she's been published by many of the top publications in the U.S., ranging from National Journal to The Washington Post, The Atlantic Monthly, and Philanthropy Magazine. Anne Snyder, welcome to Serve to Lead. Thank you. Great to be here. And this podcast starts with a brief recording from Theodore. You share with Roosevelt a focus on what you call, at the turn of the 20th century, Roosevelt advocated an American exceptionalism based on what he called the national character. Indeed, he said that, quote, the foundation stone of national life is, and ever must be, the high individual character of the average citizen. How do you respond to what Roosevelt said, and how do you think of these issues as we begin a new century? Yeah, no, that's a great um, prompt, actually, as I started this work. Um, so just slight, tiny little background. Um, back in early 2016, spring, I think it was, I was asked by the Philanthropy Roundtable, who in turn was asked by a group of foundations and donors who were increasingly concerned that there wasn't really a vision for 21st century character building. Um, I was asked to try to get to know their concerns, interests, and uh, could I cast a vision that would unite a group of donors that might be able to fund and or create some fresh institutions that were in tune with sort of our demographics as a nation in this time and a variety of other dynamics. So early on in that project, I was, uh, as I said yes to it, I was trying to inspire myself with a little bit of... Um, I felt like fairly sensitive to the contemporary dynamics and how skittish people can be to talk about virtue and that sort of thing. So I was like, I need to fortify myself with some history here. So I actually went, I, at the time I was living in Houston, I went to Roosevelt Island and looked at all those Teddy Roosevelt quotes. And um, on the one hand, they're very bracing and they are inspiring. They're also very um, kind of like masculine character in nature, which I was, I'm very appreciative of, but, um, well, also I'm not a guy, <laughs> but I felt like these are, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm pro this is one element of so many complex dynamics over the last 60, 80 years. Um, but sort of his, his ode to the self-made man and what it meant to really be manly and all of that, 
um, there's sort of a whole set of virtues that are that go along with that that I think people have they hear that and they think oh well that's only that's only relevant to a certain kind of like waspy ideal of yesteryear um, when we had so so anyways it was anyway all that just to say I love. I love sort of TR's exhortations. I think what I wound up navigating was a much more sort of fraught set of baggage around um, what people, pe- the word character somehow felt aggressive to a lot of people today. Um, and I found myself almost yearning for, at times, not the homogeneity, but sort of yearning for TR's like moral self-confidence to say that the country won't survive unless the individual character of its citizens is still kept front and center. Um, because I think at some fundamental level, I think he, he was and remains absolutely right. I, I believe I recall a really interesting phrase from your excellent new book. You talked about, I believe, moral imperialism. Yeah. How do, you, how do you think about character today? I mean, given that it is important, how would you define it for this new century? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I view, I kind of, I, I, given, frankly, that I, I ran into, I was surprised at how ideologically kind of loaded the word was and just that, that people reacted to it. I, I really, I tried to be at once like very culturally sensitive to the moment, but also if I can use a word that's sort of borrowing from religious, religious landscape, like there, there is, there is some timeless and transcendent aspects to what, what character is. And it's in some ways it's, it's, it won't surprise anybody. It's not rocket science. It's like a sort of, I think I wound up defining it as like an engraved set of dispositions to be and do good, to serve others, um, you know, there are a whole variety of traits that go along with that. So being humble and being willing to self-sacrifice and courageous and being willing to choose right, even when it's painful, um, willingness to forgive and so on. Um, so I think those things in some ways are pretty timeless. There's sort of a merge of both Greek and Roman ideals of what virtue was, which were more sort of rooted in the heroic. Um, and and then I would say kind of Judeo-Christian ideals, which uh, have a humility element in them and sort of t- you lose yourself to find yourself. There's So a sort of a merge of those which have been at least part of a Western civ conception of character for 2,000 years. Um, so anyways, I say all that to say I'm, I'm still trying to celebrate, um, I think, the human yearning to be good. What seems to be in dispute today is, is the elephant in the room, which is like, what is the good? Um, and people think they have, very, they, they, they have very different definitions of what the good is. And I think some of that is just because of our culture wars in this country the last few years. And um, so that I, I found myself... Um, or I didn't find myself, but I found a surprising number of people who were like, we're just really nervous around this word because um, whose character are we talking about and what cultural sort of set of virtues are we talking about? And, um, you know, there were even words like, well, if you talk about character, you're immediately talking about colonialism. And (laughs) so I was like, oh my goodness, we are definitely in like 2016, 2017. Well, so how do we break out of that? I mean, surely in any part of the world, there yeah. would be agreement on certain fundamental virtues that are required simply to interact and, or do business, much less 
operate as a successful commonwealth. How did you how do you get to that? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of what I was trying to do, which was um, unite both uh, people, sort of practitioners, like people who lead schools and camps and prisons and even companies to the philanthropic world, to also the academic community and the intellectual universe. Um, you know, it's one of, character is just one of these things, I'm trying to think of a corollary, but it's just one of these things that you know it when you see it. And it's frankly a lot better lived and more compellingly lived than pontificated about. So um, I think the challenge for a writer in this case was like, how do you, if I'm pontificating in a sense, because I'm using words and, and, you know, I think most of us actually are in much more agreement when we see someone, you know, step in front of a car to save an elderly lady's life if she's crossing the street and didn't see the car coming or, you know, you see someone take time to not just give money to a homeless person, but actually look them in the eye and spend 15 minutes getting to know them and so on. Um, in action, most of us actually agree on what a character is. So I decided to just tell a series of narratives around kind of how, not just what character looks like, looks like in individual lives, but how it is the, are sort of our best angels inspired by certain identifiable kind of conditions like if we're if we are formed if we are kind of weirdly echoing creatures we do imitate those who are around us what are certain communities today and or institutions today doing to instill um, a culture that then activates our courage activates our um, kind of uh, willingness to listen more deeply our empathy our um, you know, what kind of a leader inspires us to be honest, even if we're going to, you know, even if the consequences aren't so great, et cetera. Well, a general question, if we don't have a shared idea of what character could be, which at least in part is a catalog of expected virtues. Right, from people, right. Then what standard of judgment is there other than simply what's legal? Right. I mean, I do think there's still... This has never been, frankly, deep enough for me, but I do think there is still this idea that the golden rule, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that still is an animating kind of baseline for most people. Uh, they may not express it in those terms, but um, I think like beneath that, a more shallow version of that is do no harm, um, which in some ways has been enshrined legally. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but... You know, I think that the do no harm, part of why I don't love do no harm, it's fine. It's just so minimal. And I think it it leads us to be very inward faced. And, and you know, it just it just further it almost gives moral credence to our, temp, you know, our sort of cultural individualism as a whole. Like it's it's just as long as you're not actually hurt, if you're not hurting anyone else, but also you're, there's no there's no inspiration to care for anyone else. <laughs> so, um yeah, I, I don't love I don't I don't love do no harm, but I do think that's where you know kind of a lot of people rest at the end of the day. I'm a good person if no one else is hurt by my by my life. How do you respond to Roosevelt's view that what makes America unique, or as we would say, exceptional, perhaps today, yeah. is the fact of what he called the national character, which he viewed as the sum of these shared virtues that Americans struggle so hard to achieve. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a timeless question for this country in part 
because, I mean, I would probably say what makes the U.S. exceptional is that it is the one nation that really was founded upon ideals and not, you know, ethnic bloodline or monarchy, et cetera. Um, and the ideals were actually rooted for all of the ways in which they've either been hypocritically lived out or, you know, uh, really never, you know, not fully, not perfectly fulfilled. The ideals of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, equality, et cetera, were all rooted in some fundamental view of human dignity um, that I would say, if, if still only in creed, has been this uniting kind of definite, you know, the American character is one that honors the infinite dignity of every human being on its land. I mean, that would be sort of, that seems to be in our documents. <laughs> um, you know, obviously today we're in a really hot reckoning as to whether all of the was really empty language and are we getting any better or are we getting worse at fulfilling them? Um, so the question of shared national character um, because it's not just national character. It's like, is this, is it, you know, it's, if there's a national character, that means there's kind of, there is some unifying ethos. And I, and I think today it's really up for debate, um, whether we do share an ethos in common. And some of that is related to, you know, whether we even feel like we have a common memory as a society or whether we share, you know, a national narrative in common. So questions of character are also yoked to, can we agree on what our history is and also where we're going? And, um, you know, we happen to be in just an inflection point of seeming like major verbal, if not cultural civil war on that one. And where do you see that headed? Uh, well, I'm not in the short term super optimistic. I think we may have to unravel still further. I mean, not to be political here, but I don't feel we have like a super, we don't, I mean, not that TR was TR was far from perfect himself, but I, but we don't have a leader, in my view, presidentially, who's um, giving us a moral language to reckon with our history. There's in a, in a sort of a healthy, productive way, um, and in in, a, in some ways, sort of doing the opposite. I sort of joke that Donald Trump is like this huge orange bandaid <laughs> that's that as that's as we rip it off, we see. You know, we see sort of a lot of um, divisions. I think a lot of us didn't know we're, we're alive and and well or very sick. <laughs> um, so in the short term, I think they're kind of we're we're going to get maybe in some sense we'll get to some like deeper unveilings of the ugly truths of our history, which has involved some injustice, which has involved some hypocritical, some major hypocritical living of our ideals. Um, but hopefully in the honesty, if there if some institutions could be created or I, I often am wondering, like, could there be civic institutions for atonement vis-a-vis -vis race, for instance, or, you know, that if 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 there are containers to then wrestle with sort of some real honest unveiling, however ugly it is, then maybe we could have sort of a redemptive moment. But I don't see that happening in the short term. Um, on the other hand, I would say, like, sort of taking politics out of it, um, and I, I, I sort of gestured towards this in the book, but at very local levels, like sort of national questions of character aside, local levels, you see a lot of these sort of transcendent, universal, timeless ideals of character being lived out, um, whether people are creating organizations for men and women who've been in prison for 20 years and trying to completely reform each of their moral compass to actually be contributing citizens. Um, or you see uh, people who are creating certain kinds of schools that on the one hand are 
welcoming kids from all socioeconomic and racial backgrounds in a really tough part of, say, Indianapolis, but are also rooted in some timeless ideals of what beauty is and what goodness is and even what truth may be. And, you know, you see a lot of different experiments in this very innovative land, I think, happening today where people are are sensing like a moral hunger in the absence of massive, like morally authoritative institutions, be they religious institutions or even, you know, the Boy Scouts or what. There's sort of some more traditional character building institutions that no longer have the currency they once did. And so people in their local environment, very sensitive to their context, are finding ways um, to, to create kind of morally coherent communities. They're just, I think, a lot smaller. Uh, than what we saw, say, you know, 60, back in the 50s or earlier. So is part of this reinventing the institutions for a decentralizing age? I think so, yes, very much so, yeah. And, and then do you have a sense yet of what that might look like? You, you write, for example, in a very stimulating essay that love and perhaps by implication character doesn't scale. So what does right. that mean practically for what needs to be done? I mean, I think, you know, as someone who's tried to both learn and also encourage and inspire philanthropists to think about their role in a very decentralized age, um, it means that we just need to get, we just need to somehow uh, revive an appetite for and get sort of whether it's, <laughs> um, I don't know if it's human peers or human resources we need alongside, an appetite for realizing the power of lots of morally formative but hyper-local sort of organizations, institutions, realize that, I think, not be disappointed with um, or, or, or feel paralyzed by, at least in the near term, the the likely like impossibility of doing something majorly national that's also deeply transformative and morally formative absent say a national service program which i am always really for but i don't think there's any political will behind um aside from that i i think philanthropists and others in a position of influence and entrepreneurship need to just get a lot more um kind of energized around the great good they can do at hyper local levels um, but maybe they need to be connected to one another on moral grounds. So, I, so in the book, I suggest these, like, I frame them in the form of questions, but they're basically these principles that I know to be at work across so many different sectors of communities and organizations that were deeply shaping um, people's moral sensibility. And they're sort of almost signs that I started, like, if these things, these things were in place anywhere I saw people's lives shifting for the better and then becoming the sorts of citizens I'd, I'd always want to be my neighbor. So the things like, you know, what I call just a fancy word, but telos, like does, does this particular organization have a really, you know, sufficiently kind of transcendent lowercase t end in mind that, that everyone feels a part of, obviously the military has had this forever. Um, uh, in Peace Corps, you could argue to some degree has, but but much smaller organizations that really know why they exist and and people are bought into the mission. Are there regular rituals where everyone comes together and kind of both reaffirms that ultimate telos and has a time of of kind of looking side by side and side and realize they're part of something beyond themselves with sort of liturgies to help them enact that? Is there joy in the house? I mean, so there was like a variety of things. I noticed amongst um, 
a wide range of kind of transformative organizations that were less transactional and more, I'm, I'm again, use a religious word here, but covenantal. <laughs> and, um, and if donors, just to use again, that sort of sphere of influence, if, if, if the sort of funding philanthropic world out there could come together and realize, maybe see, I mean, they're not really my principles, I just happen to observe them and name them, but sort of see the comprehensiveness of what I'm trying to name as like a, a, a very like morally coherent, um, morally generative community, uh, maybe they could then take those principles and enact them at local level sensitive to the context of, of, of class, demographics, et cetera. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I'm speaking from like 300,000 feet above the ground, but no, it's very um, helpful. I wonder if there's like national sort of moral agreement at some level of like what, what it takes to build a healthy community. And then, you know, and then you get into all the particulars in your place and don't well, worry me... about the nation. I mean, don't worry about the nation. I shouldn't say that that's off the record, <laughs> but you know, huh. st strategically, um, be united in first principles and then apply them in their beautiful distinctiveness in the context. And of course, one advantage, while on the one hand, in our decentralized moment, things happen separately. Uh, on yes. the other hand, good ideas can be replicated much more rapidly than historically. That's so true. Yeah. There's a great balancing here, a compensation that maybe institutions uh, have not been developed around just yet. Right. Right. No, I think that's very true. Let's talk a little bit about politics, because that this is really about politics, not about partisan politics, but about how we make decisions for the country and ourselves. The 20th century included several great moments of presidential leadership relating to service. We've mm -hmm. talked about Theodore Roosevelt and his call to citizenship. And that was at a time when he and many others viewed the country as in great peril. Mm hmm which we now forget, uh, Woodrow Wilson's call for a world safe for democracy. Franklin Roosevelt, who combined a bit of both of those two, called for a new national compact domestically, beginning mm -hmm. at the Commonwealth Club in 1932, and then led the role for a new order after the Second World War. And of course, John Kennedy's inaugural challenge to ask not what our country could do for us, but what we could do for our country. Right. So with without being limited to current and recent presidents or candidates, what would you have a president do? What would your ideal presidential candidate step up to right now if they said, okay, we're ready to go and tell us what to do? <laughs> well, my answer may tell you that I should never be in politics <laughs> because <laughs> I'm gonna speak in terms of ideals right now and not any kind of policy, just partly to try to stay away from the partisan um, world in, but um, I mean, again, to go back to this notion that insofar as the U.S. is exceptional, I would root that exceptionalism in just its uniqueness as being founded in some ideals that are somehow like timeless in their um, their their beauty of acknowledging that um, that human beings are at once wired to be like moral agents and have dignity in their own right. And they're wired to be attached in healthy and generative ways with one another. And I think the U S has historically, what presidents often did was they were able to acknowledge both 
the great character of our individual citizens and and sort of call us out to 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 serve others to die for die to self to um make your town great it's the, you know name the name the cause while also gesturing towards um i hate to use this word a little bit like some communitarian genius that i think tocqueville noticed and others have no other outsiders noticed um so you know i i think i would probably i would call in our day given kind of i think what's been unveiled the last few years and a deep sense of division and certainly a lot of young people i mean i was just talking to a young woman last night who is she represents many 21 year olds i now speak to who they don't want to bring children into this world into this country because they just are so despairing about their own futures um in that context i would ask the president to not um invoke kind of our uh us versus them like to to not try to defend one people group in this in this country but instead uh instead of focusing on like group identity and you know uh, tribe um i i would love for him or her to um invoke kind of our our original ideals of what it, of what it means to, you know, re, you know, respect and care for one another. So I'm sounding, I, sorry to sound a little like Oprah here. Um, but I think someone who's able to kind of reckon with who's, who's able to like honestly talk about our history, um, while, while saying, you know, we are, you know, we are an ongoing experiment and, um, uh, in some ways just to speak more credibly than, um, you know, nativist or uh, sort of saying, you know, some of us, some of us are in, some of us are, are original Americans. I mean, what our current president is doing, in my view, is just always um, never speaking to our ideals, actually only speaking to some sense of kind of, uh, uh, it's not even nostalgia. It's, it's like a weird, um, it's a little bit racial and it, there's just like, a, it's, it's, it's a group. He's just, he's just doing group identity politics, which can be very emotionally satisfying to one group of people, um, but but actually doesn't sound American at all <laughs> to me. Well, how do we snap out of this? Because a lot of people argue, and I think they have a, a strong argument, whether one agrees or not, that the leading presidential candidates of both of the legacy political parties, yeah. and certainly recent presidents of both parties, have bowed to national identity, but have very skillfully in various ways that have not been missed on anybody, been very much identity politicians. And right. people's general reaction is just based upon the identity they favor. And mm -hmm. as long as that pays off in the political market, it seems as though we're stuck with it. Or is that too pessimistic? Do you see a way, for example, are there any major candidates now, not whether you're for them or not, but right. you think are expressing this well? I don't, to be honest. Or those that are sort of expressing it well. Like I thought at first, well, I thought at first Joe Biden was um, expressing this well, and but I, I think those that 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 have it in their bones to express it well are viewed um, as extremely out of touch um, and somehow not speaking with the emotional grist and anger of the moment. So I just don't have hope for them on kind of pragmatic grounds. Um, but no, I'm going to, to be honest, I'm going to share your pessimism again, at least for the next 10 to 20 years. 
I hate to well, say it. <laughs> well, I, I'm not pessimistic. I'm merely asking questions of you, the expert. So that's. Uh, let me ask you this: If I have it correctly, and and you'll let me know if I get this wrong, I believe you're what the great commentator Eliza Schlesinger calls an elder millennial. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm barely a millennial. I'm right at the borderline, <laughs> and sometimes yes. So <laughs> I use so, that identity uh, with caution. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you referred to Gen Z earlier, a 21-year-old or people that age you've been dealing with. Yeah. What do you see as the role of generational change in moving toward the vision you have of character and national identity? Right. Well, on the one hand, I would say, and I'm, this is not my original thought, but um, my observation, both just in various workplaces to, I have a chance here and there to speak on college campuses and get to know students and um, some up and coming organizations that are trying to harness recent college grads, as well as my husband and I are part of a community of largely 19 to 24 year old kids who are mostly artists in DC. And anyways, amongst all of those sort of samplings, I've I've never seen, in my own lifetime, I have not seen such a generation gap, kind of an ethos and optimism versus pessimism as I'm seeing now. And I think some of that is purely the digital revolution. Um, but, I mean, you look at suicide and depression and anxiety rates, you look at m most of the sort of deep signals. So there's, there's great material prosperity right now, by and large, and there's the job market is great and so on. But you ask your average 21-year-old, um, you know, how they're feeling about their careers and they are just paralyzed with anxiety. It's like a spiritual, some sort of almost spiritual, um, uh, just stuckness of feeling, uh, I don't know whether it's, they can't find the needle in the haystack or whatever. And I remember feeling plenty of angst in my twenties, but not, there's like this almost deeper, like darker level of existential alienation from the society in which they call themselves citizens. Um, so I say that sort of problematic diagnosis and say with that comes just enormous spiritual and moral hunger to belong to something coherent, to um, actually find exemplars who may not necessarily lead with an authoritarian or even patronizing touch, but who somehow are able to... Um, I don't know that they, they, people are yearning for mentors, exemplars who can somehow dance with them in in, in the right tonal way, um, and and they they are yearning, I think, for all of the decline and sort of religious observance and so on. A lot of young people, because of that, they're channeling this. I my my biased view is that mo all human beings, at some level, are kind of religious creatures, where regardless of where the, where they put that. Um, part of themselves. And, you know, a lot of them are wanting to bring their whole selves to work. And so they're, they're demanding from their employers, um, more of kind of more existential fulfillment with, which a lot of boomers don't boomer kind of CEOs and so on don't know what to do with. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there are some healthy, sometimes they may be a little overwrought. Um, you know, people want to tell their whole childhood stories in your first meeting at work. And I've seen bosses who are like, what on earth is happening? We never, I don't know what to do with this vulnerability. We're a bank, you know? Um, but there is, I think with that hunger comes an opportunity for whether it's their peers or, or frankly, slightly older people like me or older to reimagine like, okay, okay, well what if these, if these young people at some basic level 
are actually just looking to feel attached to something greater than themselves, where they're able to be honest, where they're able to struggle with others, where they're actually able to be held accountable with those they trust. What would that, what do I need to do in my day if I'm leaving this place of work or if I'm uh, leaving this neighborhood group or, you know, this volunteer project? What does it look like to create organizations and or communities that kind of respond to and address, if not fulfill these yearnings? Because I think the yearnings are in some ways are more naked and certainly more acutely felt than uh, my parents' generation felt in the 80s. Um, so th with, with yearning comes a question mark that it's up to a lot of the rest of us to try to respond to. So I, I view that as a positive, moral hunger as a positive versus moral complacency. And you're doing such important stuff, and it, it reaches all the way from people in their homes and communities and workplaces to the country as a whole. For people listening and intrigued by your ideas, where would you recommend they go to follow up and to learn about your work and continuing oh. detail? Oh, that's so kind. Well, um, I've had a bit of a hodgepodge writing career, so I've kind of collected them all on a little website. It's just under my name, AnnSnyder.org. I think it's called Of Souls and Silos, which is actually trying to get at your concept here of uh, decentralization and the siloing, but also that there are some transcendent yearnings in the midst of that, and human souls are souls at the end of the day. Um, so anyways, AnnSnyder.org is where you can find my writing. You can contact me through there. Um, and... Um, I'm, I am going to be leading this magazine and remaking it, Comment, it's called. It's actually based out of Toronto, um, so it's both for the U.S. and Canada, and the tagline is Public Theology for the Common Good, and that's really, I do have a voice in that, but it's more I get to sort of conduct a choir of voices from all walks of life, which will hopefully further a lot of these ideas with people far wiser and um, grounded than I. So hmm. check out Comment Magazine in the next year. And let's ask a few things about you. Uh, what are two or three books that have been great influences on your life and work, either recently or over time? Oh, gosh, what a great question. Um, oh, big question. I'm staring at big bookshelves right now. Um, one book that really actually changed my life is a little book. It's probably The Width of Your Pinky. It's called Compassion by Henry Nouwen. Um, uh, who was a very celebrated sort of Catholic priest and intellectual at Harvard Div School who wound up um, kind of sticking into a deep depression and living for the for many years with uh, L'Arche, which is a community of um, those with intellectual disabilities. And so anyway, it's a book called Compassion. It's basically about what it is to suffer with other people. Um, uh, but it's actually very helpful and uplifting and completely redefined in my own sense of vocation in the world. Um, another book is called that really impacted me both intellectually and kind of strategically. Uh, and it even relates to how I, I sometimes facilitate retreats and convenings for leaders from different walks of life. And um, it, uh, it, it helped me structure them. It's called Community, colon, A Structure of Belonging. And that's by Peter Block and John McKnight. Um, and then I will give a shout out to... Uh, this is more personal memoir, but um, The Long Loneliness uh, by Dorothy Day. She just was a huge exemplar for me in terms of someone who tried to combine both journalism with really like creating an institution and, and I mean, she created the Catholic Worker Movement and uh, just was both gritty and yet wound up yielding this whole like labor movement, union movement um, at, the at the height of the Depression and afterwards and synthesized like deep faith with um, 
like, uh, yeah, just gritty living on the streets and, um, and wrote and wrote from that place of synthesis. So, uh, yeah, long loneliness, community, a structure of belonging and compassion. Those three. Excellent sharing. And let me ask you too, uh, given that you're at the center of so many currents of politics and culture, what do you look at day to day to get information just in general in terms of internet or publications? Yeah. Are there a small number that are really your go-to go if you had to just go to a few? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, one thing, it just, I have some good friends that are kind of my aggregators. They'll just send me stuff. And so I, I like weirdly, I, I guess this is elderly millennial, millennial of me. I'm not really on social media, but email wise, <laughs> I just have friends who sort of judgment I trust. So they'll send me, you know, longer form pieces from here and there and elsewhere. I tend to go to the browser. It's a daily email that gives links to, it's actually based out of the UK, but they link to five long form pieces a day from all over the internet. Um, and that'll just kind of give you a longer view, uh, often quirky. I read Tyler Cowen's blog, Marginal Revolution. Um, I, uh, well, I'll probably check out the Washington Post here. There, I, I subscribe to the Texas Monthly, which I think is like the best magazine in America right now. Um, it's just a lot more textured. I find, especially being back in D.C., um, a lot of the national publications they can give you the headlines, but they really fall short on nuance and actually understanding the complexity of how people don't fit into statistical categories. And so, I love like local magazines. And Texas Monthly is not that local; it's a big state publication, but. Um, Still, it just has got a flavor from a state that I fell in love with. <laughs> yes. um, so, that, yeah, that's it. Arts and Letters Daily. Um, yeah, I, it's varied over the years, but that's, that's probably a good sampling these days. Well, in closing, when people think of Ann Snyder and your message, <laughs> is there one sentence you'd like to leave us with? For someone who's heard this today, if you wanted to have them leave with one sentence, what would you have them leave with? Oh, goodness. Um, I'd say uh, try, and I, I fail at this every day, but try to be open to the unexpected in every human being you encounter and think of it as an encounter that could change you a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that's what I'd say. Well, that's wonderful and fitting. And Snyder, thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please rate us highly on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, serve2lead.org.